0: I know this is a difficult meeting sometimes to sit through and keep your eyes open, but let's uh, begin with number 256. Verse 4 says, Keep us, Lord, or keep us cleaving to thyself and still believing till the hour of our receiving, promise joys with thee. If someone could raise the tune, 256. ask the Lord for his help. Our God and Father, we just look to thee for thy help this afternoon as we again open thy word and seek to be encouraged by it, to be exhorted by it, to uh, consider the day in which we live and the unique challenges that we all face, but perhaps especially so those that we like to call our young people. We just pray, Lord, that thou would encourage them to press on in the face of the uh, fierce headwinds that we experience in this present day. Just uh, cry to thee, Lord, for thy help, and just pray in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. The subject that I had on my mind was vaguely the thought of influences, and I uh, I got to thinking, well, what verse would I begin with, and I found a verse, which I'm about to read, verses, and my message changed a little, and instead of really focusing on the subject of influences, I'm going to go through these verses, and it so happened that I didn't actually have a letter in my hand from Shadow Hills for this conference, and I asked my brother John to send me a copy, and he sent it to me, and it so happens that these verses are the very verses that they quoted in that letter. That wasn't by design, that was the way it turned out. But 2 Timothy chapter 3, and I suggest you put a bookmark in this page page of your Bible, because we're going to keep turning back to it. But I'm going to read it in its entirety, and then we're going to go through it and see what it tells us. So Second Timothy chapter 3, and I'm going to begin in verse 13, but my message really begins in verse 14. But verse 13, evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and has been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Like I said, I want to begin in verse uh, 14. Continue thou. That word continue, I looked it up. I, as we go through this, you'll discover I fascinated by words, and God has chosen to communicate to us using words. But that word continue in Greek is meno, which is a favorite of the apostle John, and it's frequently translated to abide, to remain. And so when the Holy Spirit descended from heaven in the form of a dove, it remained upon him. And so that word continue has the thought of abiding, and so John actually uses it In uh, 1 John chapter 2, when he speaks to the young men and he says to them, in verse 14, I have written unto you, young men, because ye are strong, and the word of God abideth in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. The same word. There's many verses I could turn to with the thought of continuing to abide, to hold fast. Uh, I've been on the Denton reading meetings. I have been for a few years now since covid and they were at the end of ephesians in the section where we have the armor and it just struck me as we took up the armor that it says three times that we're to stand it actually says it four times but in uh, uh, so ephesians 6 verse 11 put on the whole armor of god that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil and then uh, in uh, verse 13, wherefore take unto the whole armor of God that may be able to withstand, it's actually the same root word, in the evil day, and having done all to stand. And then verse 14, stand therefore having your loins girt about with truth and having on a breastplate of righteousness. You know, the battle that it's speaking of here is not a battle about taking new ground. It's a battle about holding fast to the things that we have. All the things at the beginning of the book of Ephesians are blessings that are ours, and we are to hold fast and not let the devil come and take them, rob us of the enjoyment of them. We're to stand. Uh, Another verse that comes to mind is in the book of Jude. Those of you that have heard me speak before will know that I turn to a lot of verses. I apologize, but I don't. I have to turn to verses I I don't have the memory capacity the the photographic memory that some of my brethren do but you know I think it's important that you be able to ultimately point to a verse of scripture to support whatever position that you have it doesn't mean that everyone's going to agree with you but it's good we have to and we'll get into this in this portion too we have to go back to the scriptures but Jude verse 3 says <coughs> Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, common meaning the shared salvation that we have, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend. The Greek word there is the, uh, has the thought of to agonize. um should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. We're to earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Because of the sake of time, I I won't go through the other verses that I had in mind. But you know, there are examples in the Old Testament of this, and one that comes to mind that I think is particularly fitting is uh, in Genesis 26. You know, when it comes to the armor of God, it says "put on," and I think the the sense of the verb there is having put on. You know, it's no good to put your armor on when the battle has already started. We need to have that armor on. We need to be prepared. And it's it's not a passive thing, even though it's not a, 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 uh, a, um, a battle where we're out, as I said, conquering new ground. Offensive, it's more of a defensive position that we have. It's not a passive one. It involves activity on our part. And there's a little picture in uh, which could be a whole meeting in itself in Genesis 26. I'm just going to turn to briefly. But in Genesis uh, 26, we find out that the Philistines had blocked up Isaac's wells. Now, the Philistines were impostors. They weren't native to the land of Palestine, the land of Canaan. They weren't the people that were there. The historic people in that land were the Canaanites. The Philistines came from overseas, perhaps from North Africa, perhaps from the Isle of Crete. They came in a similar time, I'm not precise, I don't know precisely, to the children of Israel. They were imposters. The children of Israel were brought into the land of Palestine by Jehovah God. The Philistines are the false, the fake, the false religion that come into that land too and claim it for their own. Well, the Philistines had blocked up, we read here in our portion, um, Isaac's well, uh, Abraham's well. And in verse 18 it says, Isaac digged again the wells of water which had been digged in the days of Abraham his father, for the Philistines had stopped them after the death of Abraham. And he called the name after the names by which his father had called them. He had to redig those wells, and every generation has to redig the wells. You know, we have been given a deposit of truth. At the end of 1 Timothy, Paul mentions at the beginning of 2 Timothy, he mentions them. And I'm just going to read the last chapter of 1 Timothy. I'm going to read it from the J&D translation. O Timotheus, keep the entrusted deposit. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and... Uh, in verse 14 i'm going to read it from the j and d again keep by the holy ghost which dwells in us the good deposit entrusted we have received a good deposit but you know there are there's those that take on a religious character that are going to fill those wells and every generation has to redig those wells for themselves they called it, he called isaac called them by the same name as the names that his father had given them we don't invent new things we're not looking for new things but we each have to make these things good for ourselves another illustration is joshua when he conquered the land of canaan every place where their foot trod was theirs to possess well didn't god give them all the land of canaan he did but they had to take possession of it and you and i have to take possession of these truths that we have in scripture so it takes learning continue thou in the things which thou hast learned you know as I. Bruce has hinted at it. Um, Yesterday, I'm in a few Zoom meetings that he is, and one thing that COVID showed us is not that we don't need to come together, that would be quite false, but it has meant that we can reach out to the ones and twos around the world that otherwise don't have conferences like this. They don't have brethren that they can meet together with apart from, in some cases, just a family. And so I am on a meeting with my brother Bruce, and uh, forgive me for mentioning names, but uh, Bill Prost, uh, my brother Bill Brockmeyer here is often on the same meeting, and I have learned far more from them than I have ever contributed to those meetings. We never stop learning. But young people, you have to apply yourself. Learning is not something that just happens, as we say, by osmosis. In other words, it doesn't just seep in through our pores. It takes effort. As I said, even though we are told to stand, it's not a passive thing. It requires activity and energy, and the, the Satan's efforts are to wear us down. But I, I did want to digress, and I know I'm going to have to keep an eye on time here, but, you know, we talk about the entrusted deposit, and a brother um, mentioned yesterday that he wanted uh, us to enumerate those things that are above that we should set our minds on. Brother Bob Tiny mentioned this yesterday. Well, I think it's worthwhile to at least mention some of the things that are a part of that deposit that we've been entrusted with. And this list is not definitive, and, and maybe I'm not even catching the most important ones. But as I said, my initial thoughts on this meeting was influences, and you know that many are reading literature and listening to podcasts and watching YouTube videos. And I'm not going to criticize you for that because it shows a certain energy of faith to do that. But we need to be mindful of what we're listening to. And we have to realize that many of the truths that form a part of that deposit that we've been entrusted with were not readily uh, accepted by Christendom. Some were, some were not. And so the things that you listen to invariably will, that, that are outside of the, the authors and writers that we're familiar with will invariably contain a mixture of that which is true and also that which is not true. And so let me just look at lists, just recently touch on some of the, the truths that were recovered in the early mid-1800s. The first one I want to touch on is what is a doctrine called the imputed righteousness of Christ. And it quite literally has appeared in every book outside of non-brethren writers that I've read. Books that are good other, in other ways. A brother sent me a book that talks about the current moral condition of the world. And it had a lot of good things in it and helpful and instructive, uh, valuable, quite an invaluable resource. But sure enough right in the midst of there he uh speaks of this what this doctrine teaches and i'll put it in plain words because i i'm not I'm not my intent to speak over the heads of you of anyone here or to sound lofty or um, intellectual but the common teaching amongst you i would say universally amongst evangelical christendom is that the the lord jesus in his life on this earth kept the law, and his obedience to the law has been transferred to us, and then on the basis of that, God justifies us. That word justified just means declare righteous. This is not true. This is not to be found in the word of God. We are justified on the basis of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The shed blood is the basis of our justification, is is resurrection, is the proof of our justification. That God is wholly satisfied with that work at Calvary's cross. But over and over again, you'll find amongst, I'll just broadly label them evangelical writers, that his obedience to the law during his life has been transferred to us and on that basis we are declared righteous the second this teaching goes back to the reformation and though they would deny it it really has its roots in Roman catholicism righteousness is not a commodity that can be bought or sold that's what martin luther fought against it cannot be transferred even it cannot be transferred from even the most righteous man that ever walked this earth, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are seen as righteous in Christ because we are seen as dead and raised with him. The second uh, uh, truth that I want to bring out is that the law is not our rule which we should live by. And it flows very much from the era of the first if we, if we are justified because of Christ's obedience to the law, then it makes sense that we should live by the law as well. Again, common teaching, they'll say, oh, you're not, you're not under law, but it still should be the rule by which you live. As I said yesterday in the meetings, the motive, and, and Bob brought it out as well, the motivation that we have for living no longer springs from a rule that is set before us. It because we have a new nature in the indwelling of the Spirit of God. We no longer do things simply because they are right. We do them because they are the will of God, and we now have a nature that delights to do His will. Another thing that was brought out in the early 1800s is the true character of the church the fact that the church is one body with Christ as its head. And that the local assembly should be a testimony to that was something that is largely or was foreign to Christendom, and even though it's tacitly acknowledged in the present day, in practice it is not. We cannot fix what that which is broken. We're not called upon to restore that which is broken, but we're still called upon to walk into obedience to the word of God, and if we're a testimony to anything. It's a testimony to the ruined state of Christendom. And that's another thing that's denied, another truth that was brought out, a truth that early brethren were severely condemned for, to suggest that the Christian testimony is in ruins. How dare you say such a thing? Well, the church in God's sight is not in ruins. And we know that the, from Ephesians 5, that the, let me just read it so I don't misquote it, He's going to um, present to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle, any such thing, but it should be holy and without blemish. I recently was looking at the first part of Corinthians, Corinthians chapter 1, and we might mention this again, but there's a verse in there that says, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, um, who shall also confirm you unto the end that ye may be blameless. That means without accusation in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, that is absolutely true. Christ will present to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle, with nothing to accuse it of. And then this writer said, in the rest of the book of Corinthians, he proceeds to blame the Corinthians. He proceeds to accuse them for all the things that they were doing that were contrary to the way of God. So don't get the two things confused in your mind, the way that God sees us in Christ on the one hand, and our responsibility on the other. So the ruin of the Christian testimony is something else that you will not find reflected in the writings of uh, Christian authors in general. The activity of the Holy Spirit in the Church of God. What characterizes the present day in which we live is as a man in glory, and that the Holy Spirit has come down and indwelt every believer. The Holy Spirit on the one hand is dismissed as some vague influence in one part of christendom and the other hand he is exalted to the glory of man in the charismatic movement neither is a true reflection of the activity of the holy spirit in the church today the holy spirit is, as it says in first uh, john he shall glorify me for he shall receive of mine and show it unto you the holy Gl- spirit is not about glorifying us not about glorifying the church but about making known Christ and glorifying him something else that's not widely understood is worship worship is by a lot and and someone said to me this to someone said this to me yesterday they uh, or perhaps it was this morning actually they didn't grow up in the meetings i didn't actually grow up in these meetings either but he grew up in a more traditional what we would say church setting where he said that worship was a uh, service orchestrated by a few on behalf of the congregation that is not worship worship is that which proceeds from my heart worship is is occupied with the lord jesus christ for who he is his person Praise, on the other hand for what he has done service on the other hand is something that we do for him one quite well known author he relabels service and says anything that we do for the lord is worship that's not true that's service we can't just redefine words going back to isaac and those wells that he redug he re- he called them by the same name as his father had called them we can't just relabel words and say well service Well, we'll just pretend that it's worship. Service is not worship. They're two distinct things. An exhortation is a word to the assembly, to the congregation, to man, to me. Exhortation, even an exhortation to worship is not worship in and of itself. A testimony to man is not worship. Worship is to be occupied with the Lord Jesus Christ and the Father for who they are. And we don't often rise to that level why because we're cold in our hearts go read what it, the apostle john says in his first uh, in, in uh, revelation 2 to the church of ephesus they had left their first love and what does he commend them for for their works that's what happens when we lose that love that inspiration in our marriages in our christian walk we substitute service for love for that affection and believe me The other party notices. God notices. Teachers, pastors, ministers, elders, these are all confused and have been for years within Christendom. Our hope is a heavenly hope. The church, as I said, is a body with Christ as its head, and that head is in heaven. We had yesterday that we have been baptized, which is a... uh, illustration of, well, it's a burial, it's a burial service, showing our disassociation from everything connected with our former lives and this world, this earth. We are a heavenly people. Again, this is largely lost. This is some of, these things I have mentioned are part of the in deposit that has been entrusted to you and I. Now let's go on in our chapter. It says at the end of verse 14, it has been assured of knowing of whom thou hast learned them. I'm not going to tell you not to read writers outside of brethren writers, but I am going to tell you to read brethren writers. I don't like to use that title, but you know what I mean. But if you do read ministry outside of Brethren and Writers, there are issues that they didn't face, issues that they didn't have to write about, the issues that we are facing in this world today. So there are invaluable resources out there. But know who you're reading. Know their background. Know their doctrine. Know what they're associated with. Know something about them. But it's much better if you begin with those that you can trust, that you're familiar with, not every writer is easy to read. I'll, I'll start with that side of things. Not every writer is easy to read. I wouldn't go out and suggest to a young person that he should start reading J.N.D. I wouldn't. I wouldn't suggest you go out and start reading Mr. Kelly. I wouldn't. Do I think they're bad writers? No. <laughs> Far from it. But there are those that read those writings and digested them and rewrote them. The Hamilton Smiths, the Woolstons, the F.B. Halls, the Edward Dennets. Yes, their writing's a little old-fashioned. Read Bruce Anstey, a brother that's sitting in the room, or I was told that translating Bruce Anstey's writings is uh, straightforward. Why? Because Bruce is a straightforward writer. There's you need to read ministry, you need to learn, and you need to know the ones who wrote the things that you're learning from. Verse fifteen of our chapter, back we're back in Second Timothy chapter three. From a child thou hast known the holy scriptures which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. I'm going to break this down to three sections. Begin with the holy scriptures. Yes, we need to go back to the word of God. So, as I said, I don't have a photographic memory. I don't have a fantastic recall. I tend to butcher verses when I quote them. That's my own failing um, Bob told you all yesterday I was different so <laughs> we're all different, we all have strengths we all have weaknesses um, but it's good when you get hold of something to have a verse, as I said, your verse may not be the verse for a friend of yours he, he may, you may tell him it and you may feel this is the verse that answers this question maybe it's, are we going to go through the tribulation it's good to have a verse that tells you you're not and maybe your verse doesn't satisfy him. Now, sometimes that happens. doesn't mean he's wrong or stupid or whatever. But we each have to make these, the scriptures ourselves, uh, uh, good to ourselves. Like I said, like Joshua, he had to walk the land. You need to walk the land as well. Another thing about the scriptures, too, is it takes reading. And I know there's people here that are not readers. You know, many of us have families, and we have children, and some of our children are readers, and some of our children are not readers. I appreciate that. But, you know, something else from First John, he says multiple times something to this effect, but First John chapter 1, verse 4, and there's no need to turn to it, John says, these things write we unto you. What was the point of John writing if you're not going to read it, if I'm not going to read it? What's the point of writing if we're not going to read it? Ephesians, Thessalonians, Philippians, these were all letters. We don't live in a day of letters anymore. We live in a day of emails. And even that day, I think, has gone past. We now live in a day of tweets and text messages. You can still use that example. What's the point of a text message if you're not going to read it? It does you no good. Now, perhaps some of you savvy ones are gonna say, ah, but the printing press was only invented in the 1500s. A uh, brother recently, yesterday asked me, did you ever go to such and such a printing museum in Antwerp in Belgium? And I said, yes, I did. And there's a printing press that was just uh, within a few hundred years of, I think it was 400 years old, so you can do the math. A hundred years, I think, of the inventing of the printing press. And to me, it was a marvel to look upon, to think that this printing press probably printed Bibles. So yes, it's true. Most people did not have the printed word. So how did they hear it? How did they get the message? They listened. There was public readings. So maybe you say, I'm not a reader. You can still listen. You, there's so much recorded ministry. There's even today, every week, there's ministry that's being recorded. The European brethren have had a meeting on Mondays for beginning since roughly the beginning of COVID. Those meetings are all on YouTube. They're all videos that you can sit and watch. The only thing I'll say is that the recorded word is as not as uh, how, how can I put it? It's not as dense in information as the written word. What do I mean by that? If you listen to someone speak for an hour and you wrote down everything they said and printed it out then you compared to what you can read in an hour you'll find that what you listen to is far less. That's fine but just be prepared if you're audio learner like to learn by listening you're gonna it's gonna take time it's gonna take time guess how long it takes to listen to an hour-long meeting an hour so you're gonna have to find an hour in your day to listen to it or you can read either way I'm not condemning you whichever path you choose but you have to read there's God as I said earlier God chose to communicate to us with words So it's important that we read those words. But I don't, this verse doesn't touch on it, but I don't want to dismiss ministry. We say, I don't need ministry, I just need you to read my Bible. No, that's not what God intended. We're told in Ephesians 4 that he gave to the church, and I'll read it so I don't mess it up. Ephesians 4 verse 11, he gave some apostles, some prophets, we have their writings in the scriptures, some evangelists, some pastors, and teachers. God has given to his church individuals for the edification of the church. You know, our verse goes on to say that from a child, we actually began with that, from a child there was known the holy scriptures. I'm going to touch on that a little bit. You know, I looked up that word child this morning, expecting it to be a certain Greek word. I, I'm not a Greek scholar. I, I, I just find words fascinating. And it wasn't the, the Greek word I expected it to be. This word actually can mean fetus. So if you looked at this verse and said, child, well, he's, you know, Paul's thinking of a 10-year-old and someone older. No, actually, the word he's using is from within the womb. So you mothers that sing to your unborn babies, keep it up. You say, well, if I read my scriptures to my children, they're not going to understand. Oh, yes, they'll understand. They won't understand all of it, but they'll understand. You know, I'm not opposed to giving your children too wholesome and sound retellings of Bible stories. Teach your children the Bible stories. My mother was a school teacher. So everything was always a lesson. Um, as a little boy, I I enjoyed what's called ladybird books. The modern reprintings of them are nowhere near as good. I'm not endorsing them or recommending them necessarily, but as a child, I can still picture in my mind. They have a picture on one page and writing on the other, and I can still see those pictures in my mind. But I learned the stories of David and Goliath, of even the Lord Jesus, of Esther. T- teach your children the Bible stories. Get them interested in the word of God. Yes, it's true, they won't necessarily understand everything. I often hear, too, older ones say, well, I don't understand the King James English. I, I, I to a degree, understand that. But growing up, we read together as a family around the kitchen, that's how we learned to read, and we read the King James. I was no cleverer than you. I I don't accept that. I do not accept that. I'm on meetings where there are those from countries where English is not their first language. And they, too, understand the King James. But if you do struggle, I am also not opposed to other translations. Like I said at the beginning, know the source. Know something about them. You know, translation is not an easy thing. We've got some poor brother trying to translate what I'm saying right now into Spanish, and I pity him. But translation can either be word for word or it can be thought for thought. Please understand that there are verses of the Bible I don't understand. Please understand that there are verses of the Bible that are just plain hard to understand. And you may find a paraphrased version of the Bible where that verse is easy to understand, but let me promise you, it doesn't convey the truth anymore. It does not convey the truth. Don't look for a translation that's just going to make everything that you can understand. There isn't one. Translation is a challenge. And if you do turn to other translations to try to make sense of a verse that maybe is in the King James or the New King James, go back to the King James and see whether it agrees. Look at writers that ministry on that verse that you can trust. Does it fit with that? As I said, as 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 says, Paul says, no um no, Continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. All right. What else? I, I spoke a little bit about words already, and I was speaking about translation, but um, Uh, one, one particular word that comes to mind that uh, is the word church. You know, the word church, if you look up in a dictionary, it gives about five different meanings of which only two of them are actually scriptural. The word church itself has a rather obscure history. They think that it comes from a Greek expression which means the Lord's house. But regardless, it's not a translation of what the Greek is in our Bibles. There the word is quite simply ecclesia, which means a calling out, the assembly. We, as I said, God has chosen to communicate to us with words, and God is his own interpreter, And you can't necessarily go to a dictionary to understand a word that's used in the word of God. You have to see how it's used in context, how God has used that word. And these words are important for us to build a vocabulary on. You know, I grew up, as I said, with a mother that was a teacher. Our hallway in our house was lined with books. They weren't ministry. We had a bookcase full of ministry. But I grew up exposed to books. And Sometimes I get accused of using big words, and it's not my intent to use big words. It's not my intent to use words that people don't understand. But God has used some big words. And I can remember when I was in my teenage years, I was not an English student, I did not enjoy English. I was a math and science student. And I was in my teenage years, and I thought, you know, I'm pretty ignorant when it comes to literature. I should put myself on a programming program of reading English literature. I'm not saying you should do this. I did. I started reading English literature. It was tough because I didn't know half the words. So you have a, You can just get a dictionary. And, and these days, it's on your phone. And you can get one for free. It's called Wiktionary. And, and you can figure things out. And the word of God is the same. As I said, you can't necessarily use a dictionary. But... Words like propitiation, redemption, uh, uh, reconciliation. These these are big words, but God has chosen to use them. And he's communicating concepts and ideas with them. And so, as I said, it takes diligence. It takes effort. it, It is not just going to, everyone's, it's nice to come to meetings and to listen to others but that's not going to be enough in your life. You have to apply yourself. You have to re-dig those wells for yourself. Moving on in our chapter. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Oh, let me finish the verse 15. Make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Wise unto salvation doesn't necessarily mean the salvation of the soul. Timothy was clearly a saved individual. I don't think it precludes it. In fact, I think it's a very important starting point. If you're here as an unsaved person and you say to me, the word of God doesn't make any sense, I'll agree with you. Because God says in his word, the natural man receiveth the not things of the spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they're spiritually disowned. So the beginning of our understanding of scripture is salvation. And if you're not saved, don't be surprised if you find the word of God um, something that is beyond your comprehension. I was in uh, high school when I was in a math class. And I don't remember the reason why. The teacher was not in the room. And what happens when teachers aren't in the room? Well, no one really continues with the lesson. But there was a young man in our class. This was upper high school. So we weren't young, uh, probably 16, 17, something like that. And he made the bold claim. I've read the Bible through. Now, everyone knew that this this young man was an atheist. He had made no... No efforts to hide that. Now, in this modern world, that may not seem like an odd thing. Perhaps most students in the math class are atheists. But I grew up in a part of Australia that was settled by Germans in the 1840s, 1850s, and they brought a very evangelical form of Lutheranism with them. And so the area of the country I grew up in was heavily steeped in Lutheranism, and most of the kids I went to school with had a pretty solid understanding of Scripture and wouldn't say that they were atheists. Whether or not they were saved is a different question. But this young man made no bones about the fact that he was an atheist, much to the chagrin of certain girls in the class who were out-and-out Christians and made no bones about that either. But you know what struck me was, he said, you know what my favorite part of the Bible is? Now here I'm probably going to have to do some explaining because you're all familiar with the fact that our Bible has an Old Testament and a New Testament And you're all familiar with the books of the Bible. And from a child, you probably learned them from beginning to end. But probably many of you don't know that the Roman Catholics have extra books in their Bible. It's called the Apocrypha. And this young man said, and the Apocrypha is not part of the Bible. The next verse talks about all scripture is given by inspiration of God. The Apocrypha is not inspired. The books of the Maccabee, historic books and worth reading as history. But they're not a part of the inspired word of God. But this young man had read a Roman Catholic Bible, and he said, My favorite part was the Apocrypha. In other words, the bit that was not inspired by God. That was the only bit that was intelligent to him. I've told this story before, so forgive me if you've heard it. Years later, I learned that he was saved. Marvelous. The grace of God. He was saved. But all scripture is given by inspiration of God. You know, I'm going to mention a man that to some of you, you're going to groan. To others of you, you'll probably have different opinions. But in 1959, Billy Graham came to the city of Adelaide. And my father was a young man in his 20s. And he went to the Billy Graham crusade. And he left a saved man. My dad is just on December 12th of this month. Just a few days ago, he turned 90 and he's still going on for the Lord. But I saw a documentary recently about Billy Graham, and when he was at Wheaton College, he was really struggling with the inspiration of scripture. And perhaps some of you are struggling with the idea that this is the inspired word of God. You know, if this is not the inspired word of God, if this scripture loses that value, then you're completely and utterly adrift. You might as well read Tolstoy's War and Peace, or name whatever. You might as well read it. It's of no value to you. Don't bother with it. But Billy Graham really struggled with it. How did he come to grips with it? Did he have every question answered that to confirm that it was the inspired word of God? No, he wrestled with it and he literally went out in the woods and he laid the Bible on the stump of the tree. and I think he got down his knees and said, I just have to accept that this is the inspired word of God from beginning to end, and he bowed to it. Now, whether or not you accept everything Billy Graham taught, and we don't, that's not the point. There are various things we can point to to confirm the inspiration of the scriptures. It's rather interesting. Mr. William Kelly, he wrote a very, as I recall it, years since i've read it a book on the inspiration of scriptures and it's really thick as i remember is that right and you start reading it and you think well wait a minute this is not about the inspiration of scriptures this is a commentary on the word of god and that's what it literally is but what he shows is that this book written by 30 something writers over a span of 1600 years fits together perfectly like a jigsaw puzzle no other book is like it the lord jesus in um luke 21 i uh, no matthew 21 i'm just going to read a verse matthew 21 the lord jesus says to the jews did you ever read in the scriptures did he have to explain what he was talking about no everyone knew exactly what the lord jesus meant when he spoke of the scriptures there's no question as to what makes up the old testament there's no doubt The Lord himself calls them scriptures. And so when Paul writes to Timothy that all scripture is given by inspiration of God, it doesn't just contain the word of God, it is the word of God. He didn't have to do any explaining as to what those scriptures were. Well, you know, some books may or may not be in the canon of scripture. None of that. There's no debate. And when it comes to the New Testament, maybe the process of arriving at the canon of scripture is a little messier than we would like to see, but I would suggest there is also no debate as to what makes up the canon of the New Testament, the books of the New Testament, despite what people may write in the world today. Every book of the Old Testament, with the exception of Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon, is referenced or hinted at in the New Testament. So the New Testament confirms the Old. Paul here is writing. And you might say, well, Paul's pretty clever. He calls his own words inspired. Well, we don't have to rely on Paul's testimony. I don't think Paul was really actually speaking of himself necessarily. But Peter says at the end of 2 Peter, in verse 15, Paul also, according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of those things, In which some things are hard to be understood that's what i was saying not every scripture is going to be easy not don't don't go looking for translations to make verses easy necessarily that they that are unlearned and unstable rest as they do the other scriptures unto their own destruction so peter puts the writings of paul firmly in the holy scriptures but we need to move along and i my comment said the last part of the chapter is, is uh, less. Oh, I, I did want to, I said wise unto salvation is not necessarily speaking of the salvation of a soul. Brother Bruce here, I've on a number of meetings with him and I know that he knows the book of Proverbs. If I need to know where a proverb is, I'll ask Bruce. The book of Proverbs is heavenly wisdom, For an earthly pathway. If you want to not. Be shipwreck in your life. The book of Proverbs. Is a good book for a young man. To get under his belt. And it's not hard to understand. But you know I spoke there. Read there from the end of Peter. And it says some men wrestle with the word of God. To their own destruction. You know, another thought that came to mind, too, is sometimes I said it's very important to have the scripture as your foundation. But sometimes people say, give me a verse for that. They don't want a verse for that. They They don't. They don't really want a verse for that. And they know you can't give them a verse for that. Not everything is verse by verse in the word of God. There are principles established in the word of God. You need to read the word of God and know it from a young child so your thoughts are formed by the word of God because there are principles that guide us. And another little pet peeve of mine, and I've used that expression before and got in trouble, but as um, people love to label things tradition, they don't understand. Yes, there were traditions of men. There were really of two kinds. Mark 7 speaks of them. On the one hand, they were the outward aspects of the law that any man can do, and they emphasized them to the detriment of the things that really addressed the heart. And so the Jews loved to do the outward washings because everyone could see them do it. But then there were also traditions that the Jews made up to counter the teaching of the law. But what people love to lay with tradition are those things they don't understand. Usually they do spring from principles found in the word of God. Before you label something as a tradition to, like a magic wand, make it go away, try to understand where it came from, and then make that judgment as to whether or not it truly is a tradition that we should continue in. Because Paul tells the Thessalonians to keep the traditions, and the word is literally handing down, same word is used in Mark 7. So there are things that are handed down to us from those above us that we shouldn't lose. But maybe we don't understand why they did them. Maybe there isn't a verse that says this is exactly why we did ABC. But at least understand where their exercise came from before you dismiss it as a tradition. But Proverbs 4, there's a verse in there, verse 7. Wisdom is the principal thing, therefore get wisdom with all thy getting, get understanding. Now, Jared, who had the Sunday school this morning, is in my local assembly, and Jared appreciate this. I'm going to give you an algebraic expression. You now I love Jim Highland, and Jim said, you know, as soon as in math they started putting X, Y's, and Z's into problems, I was completely lost. This verse, wisdom plus knowledge gives understanding. Get understanding. Young people, get understanding. Don't just read the Word of God to memorize. It. That's a good thing. Good place to start. Absolutely, it is. That's the knowledge part of it. But apply wisdom to it. Get understanding. Let it form your thoughts. Going back to our chapter again, it says it's profitable for doctrine. Oh, doctrine. You know, I don't know how many times I've heard people say, well, that meeting was over my head. You know, what's the first piece of the armor? It's our loins girt about with the truth. I'm sorry, but you can't get away from doctrine. You can't get away from teaching. You just can't. You're going to be like what it says in Ephesians 4. If you don't know doctrine... We are going to be like children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness when they lie in wait to deceive. If you're reading or listening to podcasts, how are you going to know whether what you're hearing is true or not true? If you have no foundation of doctrine, you are simply not going to know. You know, doctrine is not something we cherry pick. Oh, I like that idea. Oh, I like that idea. Well, Not so much that one. It speaks in Ephesians of, I know I have it in my notes somewhere, but I can probably find it quicker than looking at my notes. But Ephesians 4 says, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. There is one faith. And it says later in the chapter, verse 13, till we all come in the unity of the faith everyone will say doctrine divides that's not what scripture says that's what man says scripture says doctrine unites the unit my brother forgive me if he ever listens to this but he goes to a little fundamental church in australia he was kind of frustrated when we were there in september he says the preacher will stand up and preach and he will say well this verse can mean this it can mean this can mean this my brother says it can't mean all three. Tell us, which one does it mean? What do you believe? But he won't. Because he knows if he says it means A, then two-thirds of the congregation are going to leave. If he says B, well, the other two-thirds are going to leave. So just be vague about it. You know, doctrine's not a hammer we beat people over the head with. But you need to have it. Even if you never use it to help another, you need it for yourself, to know whether what you're hearing is true. So doctrine heads the list. Reproof, the word there is really conviction. You need to let the word of God convict you. If you don't like what I'm saying this afternoon, it may be because I'm a lousy speaker, or that I've not said the right thing, but it might just also be because you're being convicted that's what the Word of God should do to us. It should convict us. It should make us uncomfortable. If the Word of God never makes you or me uncomfortable, then perhaps we're not reading it. Talking about ministry, I happened to latch onto William Kelly. I read all of the Kelly that I could lay hands on. And then I started reading... Other right, I didn't begin with Kelly, incidentally. I read in my teenage years. I, I started out in prophecy. Prophecy was interesting. I liked Edward Dennett. I read him. He wrote a book called Twelve Letters to Young Believers. If a young person in here have never read Twelve Letters to Young Believers by Edward Dennett, you should read it. Each chapter is really short, doesn't take much of an attention span. You should read it. But I read Kelly. And I realized I read Kelly because it satisfied my intellect. You also need to pick up writers that are going to challenge you, make you feel uncomfortable. Don't just listen to the speakers that you happen to like. Listen to the speakers you struggle with. Then it says, correction, if we're convicted... The Bible also convicts us on the one hand and points us in the right direction on the other. We need to be ready to take correction. None of us like correction. I have spoken a number of times at conferences and so on. I once told someone, I don't think there was a single time I ever spoke where I haven't said something wrong and someone's corrected me on it. That's not entirely true perhaps anymore, but you never forget those corrections. I never liked them. I, I, I can say I appreciated them, but they don't make me comfortable. I don't think anyone feels particularly comfortable with correction, but we have to be willing and able to accept correction. Instruction in righteousness, the word for instruction here, I think I think of this on the positive side. The word for instruction here is the same word in Ephesians 5, I believe. It is for nurture. Or it might be a six. Nurture. It's it's the same word in the Hebrews 12 means chasten. It's the thought of discipline. It takes discipline. You know, we think of discipline in a negative way, but a coach wants to instill in his, whether it's a football player, track and field, or whatever, and I was not a great sportsman. Sports was never my first love by any means. But... It takes discipline to be a good anything. Discipline. So, discipline and righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. F- the, that expression, "thoroughly furnished, could be, JND translates it, fully fitted. I looked up the Greek for that word, too. And remarkably, it is literally translated, outfitted. If you take the Greek word and split it apart, it means outfitted. If you're going on an expedition, you have to get outfitted with all the things that you need for that expedition. It's too late once you've left and you're on your way. You don't have what you need. We need to be outfitted. This is what's going to keep us. And this is the exhortation the Apostle Paul gave to Timothy. Let's just close with prayer. Oh, God and Father, we just pray, Lord, that we would value thy word, value it, treasure it, and, two that we would value and treasure the truths that were recovered, not just in the 1800s, but the truth of salvation through faith and not works in the Reformation and the price that men paid for preaching that. A price that for some meant even their lives. Lord, we, we take so much for granted in this present day. We just pray, Lord, for thy help in continuing to abide in thy word. And the, the, to hold fast that deposit that we've been entrusted with. We don't know how much longer we're going to be here. We feel that, that shout is very soon but it doesn't change the way that we should behave or view thy word. Just pray these things now in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.